I'm Charles Webb, and welcome to Profiles on WFIU. On Profiles, we talk to notable artists, scholars, writers, and get to know the stories behind their work. Our guest today is Michael Barone, whom many of you have heard as the host of Pipe Dreams, and we are honored that he is in Bloomington and uh, willing to be interviewed this morning. Dr. Barone uh, is going to talk a little bit about his early acquaintance with the pipe organ, but I want to tell you a few things about his career. He earned a bachelor's degree in music history from the Oberlin Conservatory, where he also got his start in radio during three years at WOBC-FM. That was the student-run campus 10-watt station. Upon graduation in 1968, he was hired by KSJR-FM at St. John's University in Collegeville, Minnesota, and has continued with the outgrowth of that station which is today's Minnesota Public Radio American Public Media System, and he has continued with that ever since. He is a past president of the Oregon Historical Society and the co-founder of the Chamber Music Society of St. Cloud. He received the President's Award from the American Guild of Organists in 1996, the OHS Distinguished Service Award in 1997, and the Deems Taylor Broadcast Award for Excellence from ASCAP in 2001. He has served as a consultant to the Walt Disney Concert Hall Organ Project in Los Angeles and is an acting advisor on organ programming for the Kimmel Center in Philadelphia. It is a pleasure and an honor to welcome you, Michael Barone, and could we begin our interview this morning with your talking just a little bit about how you got acquainted to the pipe organ, when that occurred, and something about your early background. Well, thank you, Charles, and it's a pleasure to be here. I suppose my exposure to the organ was kind of by osmosis, our family attended the Presbyterian Church in Kingston, Pennsylvania. And when I and my brother were kids, uh, we would sit near the front so that we had easy access to the pastor during the children's sermon. And sitting in the front, you got to watch the organist, Marion Wallace, at the console, who was just across the way. And eventually I was taking piano lessons from the uh, traditional little old lady down the street, Stella Pickett, marvelous woman, who uh, built on an interest that I had had in classical music. Before I can remember thinking or remembering anything, apparently my parents tell me that I was listening to the few classical music recordings that we had at home. So there's something in the water, I guess, uh, in my background. So one thing led to another, and... I did not start organ until, I, I didn't really officially take organ lessons until I went to Oberlin. I, I sort of poked around at it. Our Boy Scout troop met in the basement of the church where we worshipped, and since my father was a deacon and my grandfather was an elder, maybe, although I'm 
not prone to being very brave about these sorts of things. Maybe I felt that I could get away with sneaking up and turning the organ on and finding out things. So I, I explored the instrument at church, but I never really seriously took lessons on it until after I went to Oberlin, where I applied to and was accepted by the college with the intent not of going into organ, not of going into music at all. I had proven myself uh, an adequate, but by no means uh, uh, an overly accomplished pianist. I played tuba in the high school band, um, sang in the glee club, but music wasn't something that I wanted to follow up on. But eventually, one thing led to another, and <laughs> here we are. And here we are, yes. We're talking with Michael Barone, the host of Pipe Dreams, the very well-known uh, radio program of classical organ music, and we're honored that he's in Bloomington for a presentation a little bit later this week. I think, uh, Michael, it might be interesting for our audience to hear you talk a little bit about the pipe organ as a solo instrument, the pipe organ, its use in many churches, but also the changing environments with uh, music in worship in so many different venues nowadays. And it might be, uh, I think it would be very interesting to hear you talk a little bit about the use of the organ, the future of it perhaps, and uh, let's see where that leads us in our conversation. Let's talk a little bit about the past of the organ because we forget that the organ was introduced before the Christian church existed, exactly. and it was used in public venues to uh, excite the populace, to uh, get them revved up, to touch their emotions and uh, excite them. Which it certainly can do. <laughs> it certainly can, and, and I think we ought to remember that that was its original use, and though it has had a long and uh, dignified service in the church— that there are other things that the organ can do. And, of course, it's proven itself in that way through history. Also, with the theater organ being very popular in the early part of the 20th century and uh, the use of the organ in in its electronic form in jazz clubs, Hammond V3 being very much a part right. of uh, that sort of music. And now with organs in concert halls pretty much across the United States, the potential for its use with orchestra and with other instruments. The instrument, the organ to me, has always been exciting. Uh, I remember when I first started collecting recordings of organ music, Albert Schweitzer and E. Power Biggs, Virgil Fox, that regardless of the kind of instrument, regardless of the type of music played, just the sound of the organ stimulated me, got got me really enthused. And it didn't have to be a pipe organ either. I remember there was a piece of popular music that was playing on the radio back in the day, uh, and a, a Latin band leader named Prez Prado who had a piece called Patricia, uh -huh. which was played on the cheesiest of electronic <laughs> sound sources. But it was an organ. It was not a saxophone or a trumpet or a clarinet. And the fact that that was organ music was exciting to me as much as listening to E. Power Biggs play the St. Anne Prelude and Fugue of Bach. 
the use of the instrument today in church is to a degree threatened because in our mainline Christian sects, you know, the Methodists and the Lutherans and the Presbyterians and the Episcopalians are losing ground to uh, uh, more evangelical worship centers. And the style of music that the mainline churches have built their traditions upon uh, seem to be less appealing to some people, uh, although I'm not sure that that's no. a, an irreversible thing. Yeah, I'm glad to hear you say that, because that's, that's certainly my opinion, too. I, 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 we're, we're seeing increasingly that uh, people of my generation who sort of rebelled against their parents, who were the traditionalists and adopted uh, the alternative worship styles, uh, are getting old, and their kids are rebelling against them and the alternative worship styles and are going back to more traditional ideas of, of church music. So the pendulum is in perpetual motion. I, I don't know that we can say anything with certainty about the future, except that it will be different. <laughs> and I think that what we can look back traditionally upon is the fact that uh, over 2,000 years and more, the organ has persisted. There is something about uh, the ingenuity of its mechanism and the beauty and the variety and the power of its tone that keep people curious and bring to the listener something that no other instrument can offer. It certainly is true that uh, when you think of all the instruments that are available to be played, uh, there's nothing like the pipe organ in terms of its vastness, in terms of its variety, and the ability to stimulate so many emotions. Uh, we have violinists and cellists and trumpeters and so forth who all do their thing, but nothing takes the place of the organ in terms of the power and the variety of sounds that it has. So I am, I am certainly thankful, and I'm, I'm happy to hear you speak positively about the future and what, uh, what you think uh, the, uh, the organ will be doing. A little something I recorded at Columbia University some years ago. It's a, an improvised fanfare by Stephen Lohr featuring the Aeolian Skinner organ in the chapel at Columbia we were setting up microphones to record Thomas Murray in a concert where he was presenting works by Felix Mendelssohn that were just being uh, brought back to public attention after more than a century of not knowing about them. Yeah. And to get a level check, I said, would someone play something loud on the organ? And so Stephen sat down and rattled off that marvelous fanfare. Oh. And I, had, I had the machine going, and it was good enough to uh, keep. Good. Lots that sounds exciting.
We are listening to Profiles on WFIU. I'm Charles Webb, your host for today, and our guest is Michael Barone, who has been the host for Pipe Dreams, this tremendous program that's heard weekly featuring the pipe organ. It is a marvelous instrument. I, the, the thing that I am delighted to realize after all these years is that a curiosity that I had as a kid has turned into uh, a lifelong passion, uh, something I just can't avoid. And it's taken me to all parts of the country. It's taken me abroad. I've met wonderful people, organ builders, composers, performers. Uh, It's been a real education. Well, that leads me to uh, another subject that uh, it would be interesting to hear you talk just a little bit about, and that is the live programs of Pipe Dreams that have come about from many cities in the United States as well as other places. So it's not just uh, produced in New York City or produced in Washington or whatever. It is heard featuring many different organs, and that's, that's an exciting thing. This all started by my having been invited by American Guild of Organist chapters to come and talk, you know, their end-of-the-year dinner or something like that, which I did a couple of times to uh, the inspired few, you know, maybe 40 or 50 people gathered around uh, boneless chicken. And I thought, hmm, this takes time. There's so little of it. And how would I better use that time? And I thought, instead of preaching to the converted, why not use my presence in a community to invite other people to uh, join in the, uh, the celebration? And hoping that there are more people who listen to Pipe Dreams than show up at American Guild of Organists chapter dinners, the idea of putting on a live performance event using local talent and inviting the listening audience to come in and see who this Barone character is because people get their ideas about what I look like and it's always a bit of a shock when they realize that the sound of my voice translates into something maybe very different than they imagined. Uh, And to use that both as a promotional for the local organ community but also for the local radio station that broadcasts Pipe Dreams. So uh, it's proven to be interesting and... uh, we continue it. Well, that's great. And when I look at the list of cities that uh, you have been in and where the program has emanated from, they are major cities throughout the whole country. And uh, uh, it's my understanding that in the next couple of months, you're going to be uh, taking a tour to Europe. And uh, I think that would be interesting to hear about a little bit. We started doing Pipe Dreams tours in 2002. I had been engaged by another organization in Minnesota to be kind of the carrot on the stick for a tour that they were putting together in the Bach year 2000, and it was to Bach country. And I had a good time with that. It's the first time I'd participated in that sort of thing as host. And I thought, well, okay, that worked for them to raise money. Maybe I can raise money for my program by doing tours. So starting in 2002, we've done an annual jaunt 
somewhere. And we went to Germany in 2002 in Bach country. Then we went to Italy. We went to Mexico. We've been to northern Germany and southern Germany, uh, central France and southern France. We've been to Austria. We've been to Switzerland. We've been to Spain. Uh, just this past year, we were in Poland, which was a real eye-opener. I had no actual expectation of much of anything. I saw pictures of organ cases, but I thought that the country might still be pulling itself out from its post-Soviet malaise. But yes. it's, it's a marvelously vibrant, colorful, lively community and uh, w with much to share and, and much to show. It was lots of fun. We go to England for a second time, and I'm putting out feelers because inevitably, as soon as we get on the coach, the band for wherever we're going in a particular year, before we've even gone to the first venue on that tour, they ask, where are we going next year? So, <laughs> so I'm plotting the possibility of France returning to France next year because there were a lot of organs in Paris even mm -hmm. that we did not get to see the first time around. Thinking about those uh, trips, does any particular organ uh, come to your mind as something that was truly great and that you really enjoyed hearing? I'm sure you heard many, but probably uh, something is uh, a little bit more penetrating than something else. That would be interesting to hear you talk about that a moment. I suppose two come to mind. That's like asking what's my favorite organ. And I then know. It, then it really <laughs> depends on who's playing it or what's being played exactly. on it. Uh, I really don't have any favorites, but two struck me. One was a little organ in a village church outside Oaxaca in Tlaca, Chihuahua, where Susan Tattershall had done a restoration, and we went down as she was putting the finishing touches on it because it had been a project that she did over time, and they were going to have uh, a grand opening and the whole village attended, and just before the program, we were invited to the assistant mayor's house for lunch, and were served uh, turkey necks. <laughs> oh, my goodness. But, but here's an instrument that uh, dated from the 18th century that had become mm. derelict, had suffered during the Mexican Revolution in the early part of the 20th century. Pipes had been destroyed. The mechanism had been ruined. She put it all back together. And in an environment where the organ really had fallen out of use, it was intriguing to see how much curiosity and enthusiasm there was from the general public to hear this instrument that some of them might have heard as children but had been mute for over 50 years. I guess the other stunning moment memorable in my travels was at San Petronio Basilica in Bologna, where the oldest organ dates from the 1400s. It's pre-Columbian. My goodness. So before there was uh, any European intrusion to the North American continent. This organ in Bologna was making beautiful music, and it still does, and its sweet and wonderful sounds fill this immense space, and you lay your fingers on those keys and hear those pipes sing, and 
you are made part of the great continuum of history. Actually, you know, that's wonderful to hear because so often uh, I am asked to be a consultant on a project where there's a new organ, and inevitably there are those people who say, oh, this is so expensive. How? Uh, why do we need to spend all this money on, on this organ? Well, I can say, and you've just proven it right there, that long after you're here and long after our next generations, uh, the organ will still be making beautiful music. Yes, it has to be kept up, but the sounds from the pipes will still be great. And so uh, it's, that's wonderful to hear stories like you just told about restorations and, uh, and continued interest in the instrument. You're listening to Profiles on WFIU. I'm Charles Webb, the host for today, and our guest is Michael Barone, the host of Pipe Dreams that many of us uh, listen to quite, quite faithfully. Let me tell you an interesting story that goes back to my days in high school. I played tuba in the high school band. often wonder what my future might have evolved into had I continued with that instrument. I don't know that there was much of a future for a radio program called Tuba Tunes, but <laughs> during uh, junior year, I was member of uh, some of the elite from our high school band that participated in a district conference that brought some of the better players from various regional high schools together. And I met uh, a mutual friend of some of my friends from back home. They knew him because as high schoolers, they were participating as performers in the Wilkesbury Philharmonic. He studied clarinet. His name was Timothy Foley. Uh, he was taking clarinet lessons from Anthony Giuliani, who was the principal of the Philadelphia mm -hmm. Orchestra at that time. So we got to know each other a bit and saw each other then the next year at the District Band Festival. On that occasion in our junior year, the major piece on the program was uh, William Walton's Crown Imperial March. Oh, yes. And I went out and bought what was then the most easily available recording, which featured Frederick Fennell and the Eastman Wind Ensemble. And at the end of that, the recording made at the Eastman Theater, the big Austin organ that no longer exists in town uh, comes sort of rumbling in underneath. And it's not a, a, an overt presence, but it's an unavoidable presence that the organ makes. And this goes back to my having said that regardless of what kind of organ it was, if I heard organ, some little trigger was set off and my ears perked up. It ends up that Timothy Foley and I both applied to Oberlin found ourselves in the very same freshman dorm section, uh, became friendly there. He went as a rather much braver person than I and volunteered to do a student involvement with the radio station. He had a two-hour program of classical music. Later in that freshman year, he got less interested in doing radio and wanted to do something else. He knew I was listening to the radio but had been too timid to participate at the beginning of the year. And he somehow coaxed me to go in and take over his last couple of weeks, which I did, and then ended up through my sophomore, junior, and senior years being intimately involved with the radio station. I was assistant music director and then was the music director mm -hmm. and had a program of my own, which is why I felt later that when I left Oberlin, 
perhaps I could find a job announcing classical music somewhere. And that took me by the greatest of happenstance to Collegeville, Minnesota, and the little radio station, which grew to be the big Minnesota public radio, American public media system of today. I preceded Garrison Keeler by a little more than a year there. Oh. So, and at this point, I'm the, the longest continuously tenured staff, 47 and a half years. Upon graduation, I went and got that job, and Timothy, because this was in the midst of the Vietnam War, and because I think he had a low lottery number, uh -huh. wanted to guarantee his future, and so he signed up for the Marine Band and stuck with it and eventually rose in 1996 when the American Guild of Organists uh, presented me with its president's award. Two days later, I was in the audience at Constitution Hall down in Washington, D.C., as Timothy Foley was presented with the Sousa Baton and became the director of the Marine Band, the president's own, which he did with great service for nine years. And then he retired. Mm -hmm. Afterwards, we both got involved with a summer music camp back in my hometown in Kingston, Pennsylvania. And Tim was hired as one of the directors of the Wind Ensemble. And we did a program 50 years after that first convergence of the two of us playing Walton's Crown Imperial. We did a program of music for organ and band. I played the organ part, and he conducted Crown Imperial. Great. That sounds really exciting. <laughs> It was thrilling. Oh, I should say so. And I think it speaks to the the influence that public school music programs can have on the lives of the people who participate, because both Tim and I were products of the high school band program. He went on to a truly illustrious career in music, and I sort of wandered into a career that uh, has brought me here uh, and have had a lot of fun along the way and uh, have been able to pay my bills as a result of my enthusiasm for music. Exactly, exactly. And you've touched on something that uh, maybe is not directly related to talking about organ music today, but uh, I will say that the decline in many instances of bands and choruses and orchestras in high school and in junior high school, uh, is is a sadness. And whenever we can have influence, which we certainly try to do at Indiana University, uh, influence to continue those kinds of experiences, they provide for people just like you, just like Tim, ways that nothing else would do in terms of making an underpinning of a musical experience that ca carries with them the rest of their lives. I, I agree, Charles, and I would say that organists, too, can be part of this because I, I think that there should not be any church organist anywhere in the country who, at the very least, once a year invites say, the uh, eight- or nine-year-olds from Sunday school exactly. to come in and be introduced to the pipe organ. We do it every year, and it is so important, so important. You just never know who's going to be that nine-year-old who will be the next Virgil Fox or the next whoever. And uh, th that's, uh, that's a very important part of, of our musical 
education. Or the next Charles B. Fisk, or the yes. next organ maintenance person. Exactly. Because we really need folks oh, to build boy. the instruments and to keep them in shape. And to in, maintain in them. Yes, we do. You probably have that Frederick Fennell recording of Walton's Crown Imperial, which could be woven in at some point there. You're listening to Profiles on WFIU. I'm Charles Webb, our host for today, and our guest is Michael Barone, the distinguished host of Pipe Dreams, which uh, is broadcast literally now all over the world. Michael, what a pleasure to have you here. And I'm going to ask a different question now, change our conversation a little bit, because it would interest me to hear your comments about something that I have wondered about for quite a while. We all know that if we had to pick, and it's hard whenever you're asked questions about your favorite this or that, but if we had to pick one composer as being more prominent than any other single for the organ. It would have to be Johann Sebastian Bach. And, of course, he wrote many masterworks that all of us are deeply, deeply grateful for. The interesting thing, however, is that with the end of Johann Sebastian Bach, the Baroque period, in a sense, came to an end as well, and um, classicism evolved. And in that area, the two outstanding composers, of course, there were many, but the two outstanding certainly were Haydn and Mozart. With the exception of some very small, nice pieces, but nothing compared to his symphonies or sonatas or concertos, um, Haydn and Mozart both wrote literally nothing for the pipe organ. Classicism evolved into Romanticism, where we have composers that produced for the keyboard literally thousands of masterworks. And we think of composers like Chopin and Schubert and Brahms uh, and many others who simply didn't write for the pipe organ, even though they were producing all these works for the piano. Thank goodness for Mendelssohn. You mentioned Mendelssohn a little while ago. And thank goodness for him because he gave us six 
sonatas of, of uh, wonderful proportion as contributions to the major organ literature. And then, of course, we come down to Impressionism and t- could talk about uh, the, the great organists, especially French organists, that uh, were composers as well. My, my saying all of this is simply to ask you, do you have any uh, insight into what might have happened between the end of the Bach era and those various uh, transmogrifications, if you will, from classicism to romanticism and even late romanticism, where the organ didn't feature, was not featured very much. I'm sure greater intellects than mine have pondered this question, and I'm not sure that anyone has come up with a definitive answer. We could imagine that it's the matter of familiarity, perhaps, uh, insofar as first the organ was kind of this new thing, and people were very enthused, and they built as many as they could and as big as they could. Then we have the uh, Reformation, and in some circumstances, the Reformed Church did away with all of those encrustations and uh, took the statues out, took all the decorations out of churches, and refused to use the organs. In the Netherlands, the Calvinist communities would sing unaccompanied. The organ would not be played during service initially. Then the organ comes back in, has another golden age, and then people maybe get too used to it, as we have here in the United States. With organs everywhere, it's such a commonplace. As, as for after Bach, well, during Bach's era, that was one of the golden ages. I could say that in a way, we're kind of in a golden age now, but... With Bach, playing the organ and being a complete musician was all part of a a great package. Mozart loved the organ and took every chance to play the instrument, but in the Roman Catholic services that he largely served, the use of the instrument was much less, and it was primarily improvised. So there wasn't a market for organ music, and there wasn't as strong a tradition. Mm -hmm. Beethoven took organ lessons. I mean... uh, Organ was the instructional tool for so many composers. Dvorak studied organ as a youngster. Carl Nielsen, even, was fascinated by the organ, wrote for it at the very end of his life. His last piece is an organ score. I think as the organ gets more complex and as it becomes less a part of uh, the common musical experience, that... There was no market for organ music, and so people didn't compose. Mendelssohn wrote those sonatas, after all, because he was asked by a publisher. So yeah. there, was, there was a desire mm-hmm. for his pieces. Brahms, who wrote for the organ yeah. and was very enthusiastic about it in his youth, then passed it by through much of his career, but at the very end of his life is writing for the organ again as kind of a a spiritual homecoming. The complexity of the organ makes composers who aren't intimately familiar with it a a little 
uncomfortable, which is why so many of the better organ pieces that have been written were written by organists Organist, themselves. Yes. But I think that simply means that people who are studying the organ now, I mean, here at Indiana U University, the organ students need to be talking to the composition majors and getting them to write pieces for them. It's not an impossibility. And though each organ tends to be different from the next, and there are things that are common amongst all instruments, but things that are very different one f from each other, that it's possible to provide enough information to a composer otherwise unfamiliar with organs uh, into how to write effectively for it. It's curious that Stephen Paulus, bless his heart, uh, recently deceased, a uh, friend of mine for many years up in Minnesota, proved himself to be a, a very prolific composer for the organ and a very good one Back in 1992, when he was introduced as an organ composer uh, with a concerto that he wrote for the Atlanta American Guild of Organists convention. And up to that point, he was known for his chamber music and for his choral music. But people thought, who is this guy writing organ music? Well, mm -hmm. it turns out he too, <laughs> his father was an avocational organist and he knew how to get around at a console. So maybe he qualifies as an organ composer. But, you mentioned a moment ago the complexity of the instrument and the maybe the difficulty in playing and and maybe that has something to do with it more than we might think because that triggered something in my mind anyway and that is probably the oldest instrument or certainly one of the oldest instruments is the harp and the major composers who wrote throughout history for keyboards all the way back to the organ or the clavichord or the harpsichord or the piano simply produced virtually no music for the harp. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think that's because it is a very complex, difficult instrument to play. And although we associate it with heavenly sounds and glissandos and this kind of thing. Really, when you get to looking at those pedals and having to use them to change the notes, it's a complicated instrument. So there might be some correlation there that they, they, the, uh, the composers didn't take time to really delve into what can the organ do and how, how can we write for it so that people will want to play. Yeah, it's curious. Charles-Marie Vidor ended up not knowing much about the harp, but decided to get to know it. He would write a set of variations for it, which he did. His one piece for, really? for the harp. I, I'm but, glad to know. I didn't know that. <laughs> but I, I think it also is because the harp, like the organ, has gone through some uh, mechanical and tonal changes over time, and the harp has gotten more complex, as has the organ, and so it, it does get a little confounding if you're not, <laughs> you're not a harpist or an organist yeah. to figure your way yes. about the instrument. But I, I'm taking, though, from our general conversation, a very positive attitude, and I, and I, I think I'm seeing in what you've been saying that uh, the, the organ is not going to be eclipsed. There's nothing going to come along and, and put this out of existence, that we're going to have continually fine players and people who are interested in writing for it. 
You're absolutely right. The future of the organ is, in my mind, if not necessarily secured, certainly not gloomy. We have some of the best young players now. The, the instrument is benefiting from quality of musicianship and an intensity of virtuosity that I don't think has ever been experienced before. Uh, there are young composers who are stretching the instrument's potentials, uh, and there are builders who are building instruments of the finest quality that can be compared to the very best from any period. Yes. So all we need is audience, and that simply requires people to put down their preconceptions, realize that because it sounds like church doesn't mean it has to be like church. Uh, it encourages organists perhaps to uh, let their hair down and uh, not always be so serious all the time. And I've always thought that though in churches that have decided to use other forms of musical accompaniment, the praise band, for instance. Why is it that the keyboard in the praise band is not the organist's keyboard? Is it because the organ lacks something? Probably not. It may be that the organist is better at playing Bach and Cesar Franck than at playing some of the more up-tempo and uh, contemporary tunes that praise bands use. But the organ is just a tool, after all. That's what the term derives from in its Greek origins. It is simply a thing to be used, mm -hmm. and it's, it's up to the organist to apply as much ingenuity and imagination to the use of this incredible tool and keep it alive in the ears and the soul's of everyone. Exactly. And I think that, that you've touched on the two major issues that are going to keep it in the forefront of music making. And that is, first of all, we have superior players, young players that are coming along who are showing uh, that uh, they can develop to the highest degree their abilities, not only digitally, but musically, and uh, from the standpoint of interpretation, personality, they're, they're coming along superbly. And the other, the other thing is the instruments themselves. And we're so fortunate here at Indiana to have two very recent organs that were built by, by Fisk in Boston and that are serving us marvelously. We, we have taught organ for a long time here uh, without having a really first-class instrument. And now we have two that we're, we're thrilled with. So I, I think that the fact that these players are coming along and the instruments are also following, that uh, the, the future looks good. I'd probably add, too, that good instruments, wonderful as they may be, are perhaps sometimes themselves a limitation. I think back to the career of Virgil Fox, who built a following throughout the country by accepting invitations to play on instruments of every imaginable yeah. quality. And though he would fuss sometimes, he would also put in the hours getting familiar with those instruments and finding where in an otherwise 
undistinguished specification were the occasional beautiful sounds and how to be able to use those sounds in beautiful ways. It could be argued that there really are no bad instruments unless they're mechanically incapable of actually functioning, that any organ that can make a well-tuned sound is capable of creating musical excitement. And it's up to organists to not be limited by the best instruments, but to be challenged by the less good mm -hmm. and figure out ways to make every performance on every organ exciting and engaging. I'm Charles Webb, your host today for Profiles on WFIU, and we are conversing with Michael Barone, the distinguished host of Pipe Dreams, who is in Bloomington and going to to be our host directly from Bloomington for one of the Pipe Dreams programs. Michael, is there anything else that uh, you would like to speak about or say to our audience today that would uh, would have to do with either your program or the, your interest in organs or anything that uh, just comes to your mind? Well, I suppose I should first say that if you happen to be listening to this program now and wonder who this Barone character is, because you've never tuned into Pipe Dreams, the program is here on WFIU Monday nights at 10 o'clock, and that will give you some idea. You can also go to the website at pipedreams.org and find out more, or listen on your mobile device at uh, yourclassical.org. It's intriguing that as I sit in my studio in St. Paul, the programs I produce can be heard globally, and I've gotten responses from people in South Africa, in Norway, uh, in Chile, and in places that I never imagined there would be someone listening to my voice, which gets back to when I started in radio and thought, ah, I'm so nervous. <laughs> I don't get nervous anymore. I'm, I'm just delighted to be someone who can open a door, open a window, open an imagination to the possibilities of this instrument that has been so much a part of Western culture for hundreds and hundreds of years, has provided so much inspiration over this time, has so much potential for the future. I am hopeful, perhaps, that uh, someone will carry on in my stead and uh, take pipe dreams well into the 21st century because I know that the organ will be there. I have been speaking today with Michael Barone, the host of Pipe Dreams and one of the most distinguished musicians in the U.S. today. And we are honored that he has been in Bloomington and that he has been a guest on this program. Thank you for being with us. This is Charles Webb for Profiles. Copies of this or other programs can be obtained by calling 812-855-1357. Information about profiles, including archives of past shows, can be found at our website, wfiu.org. Profiles is a production of WFIU 
and comes from the studios of Indiana University. Josh Brewer is the producer. The studio engineer and radio audio director is Michael Paskash. Please join us again for the next edition of Profiles.